with that, happy, uh, happy Resurrection Sunday. This is, uh, I know this is, I've learned since I, I wasn't really raised, sort of, I wasn't really the church kid. Uh, my dad is here today, and it's always nervous to me. It makes me nervous when people say, oh, you probably got all kinds of stories about Gunner. It's like, ah, dad, just quiet, quiet. I was a different person back then. Like, I'm a, it's been a lot of years, you know, and, and uh, um, this is a special day. This is one of those days. Um, it's, it's not just Easter Sunday. For those of us who know Christ, uh, we celebrate the resurrection every day uh, through his the death, burial, and resurrection, my life has been radically transformed. Um, Ten days ago, I, I personally visited the, the, what they believe was the tomb of Christ, and I can assure you it is still empty. I f- already forgot who this morning, they're like, well, do you think it's really the, the place that, that he rose from? And it's like, well, there's not a whole lot of locations that you can choose from, and it fits everything, but the problem is it's an empty tomb. Like, it's not like there's a body there that we can sort of check evidence and DNA, but everything, like, to the place of the skull, Gagatha, you go just a little bit to the left, they've, they've, they've discovered, you know, I mean, this is like a long time ago, they discovered that there actually is a wine press and garden, and it just happens that there is a big stone wall, and then they discover that there's a tomb that's huge that would have been owned by a wealthy person. And in that tomb where there's multiple spots, there's only one spot that had like a carve out for that had been used once. Um, so there's just overwhelming evidence all through Israel um, supporting this Christ um, and, and his claims. It's, this isn't uh, something that's made up. Um, it, it, it's, a, it's a powerful truth. And so today we... We started the Gospel of Matthew like, like a year and maybe five months ago. We're just going to continue uh, because right where we are in our, our, our study, Christ begins to, to share about his death, burial, and resurrection. And so I'm going to pray, and then we'll begin to look at our passage. Uh, Father, we do thank you and praise you for this day. We thank you for your word. Lord, we, um, Lord I just... I am in awe of you. Um, Father, I'm thankful that you gave your son, Jesus, Lord, to enter into this world, into, uh, into humanity's sort of realm, that he would live his life as an example to us, that he would live perfectly to us, for us to see. Uh, Lord, we thank you that um, there's so much evidence supporting who Jesus is as the Messiah, um, you, you can't just fulfill these prophecies that he did. And Lord, he came in a way that uh, seems foreign to us, doesn't make sense, um, that our king would come and die for us, that he would conquer death so that we no longer have to fear the sting of death, that we would have life in him and have relationship with you. And so, Father, today, as we look at this story, I pray that you would help it, us to see it anew, afresh, Lord. For those of us who know Christ, um, that, that our, our fire for you would be flamed. Um, Lord, our passion for you um, would grow. That our understanding intellectually, Lord, would be deepened. Lord, there's so much evidence 
It's not just blind faith. And so, Lord, for those that are here that don't know Christ as Savior, I do pray, Father, that you would open their hearts, that you would speak to them, that you would help them uh, to answer their questions concerning Jesus. And Father, we do thank you, we praise you, and we ask this in Christ's good name. Amen. Matthew chapter 16, verse 21. From that time, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and be raised up on the third day. Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him, saying, God forbid it, Lord, this shall never happen to you. But he turned and said to Peter, Get behind me, Satan. You are a stumbling block to me, for you are not setting your mind on God's interests, but man's. And Father, we do thank you for your word. We ask that you would help us now. And it's in Christ's good name we pray. Amen. All right, so we come to the passage. This is, uh, as we work our way through the Gospel of Matthew, there are certain um, literary nuances that help us to sort of understand what the writer is uh, conveying. The author of the Gospel of Matthew is Matthew the tax collector. This is a disciple of Christ. This is an eyewitness to the things um, that Jesus did. He writes this Gospel with the intention of laying out truth uh, to the Jewish reader. Of all the Gospels, he has more Old Testament quotes in his gospel than any other gospel account. And the reason is for the Jewish reader um, to prove to them that Jesus fits the bill of being the Messiah, the Christ. He would have to show it from, from, from the Old Testament. And so in verse 21, we see from that time, Jesus began to show his disciples. If we were to go back to chapter 4, verse 17, we would read this. From that time, Jesus began to preach and say, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. So from 417 up to this point in chapter 16, verse 20, Matthew has laid out uh, what he's writing sort of in a a, a, a topically. Uh, He's not necessarily going in chronological order. He's uh, piecing together his account of Christ in in a very specific way. And so up to this point, he's been recording Jesus's sort of account. He's been coming on following the the message of John the Baptist, repentance for the kingdom of God is at hand. Um, In chapter 12, we see that the the leaders of Israel, they had rejected Jesus and his teaching and his ministry. Uh, They began to formulate a plan uh, to have him crucified And before you get on into any sort of anti-Semitism, like, oh, the Jews killed Jesus, this whole, the whole New Testament is a Jewish book. This are, with the exception of Luke, these are, these are, there's Jewish believers and Jewish non-believers. And here we have those who rejected the claims of Christ. They all were Jew. They, they rejected him. And so we come to this section and we learn from that time, same verbiage that we see in chapter 14. We see a shift in Jesus' teaching. Something about his content is beginning to adjust. Uh, the, the contents that, that shifting is, 
Now he's working with his disciples and he's beginning to show them that he was going to the cross, that he was going to be crucified, um, that he would be killed and that he would raise from the dead. Um, from here towards the rest of Matthew, much of the teaching that's recorded is sort of focused on the disciples and he is sharing with them, helping them to understand what's about to take place. At this place in our story, we're about six months out from the crucifixion of Christ. Um, moving on here, it says, From that time Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and the chief priests and scribes and be killed and be raised up on the third day. Um, th- this verse is sort of a, a historical narrative. It, it, it's, it's interesting that in the previous verses and then the following verses, G, uh, Matthew writes where he's telling the story, like he's saying, hey, Jesus said this to us, and this is how he responded. Um, and in verse 22, he's going to pick up the story and say, you know, Peter pulled him aside and said this to Jesus. But in the midst of this, uh, uh, Matthew being there sort of p- inserts this verse, although it wasn't a verse, it was just a sentence. Verses didn't come until, you know, the 1500s, thankfully by a French guy, um, so that we could find our way around the Bible a lot easier. Um, He says, you know, from this period, as we sat there, this is the time when Jesus began uh, to explain to us, to share with the disciples that he had to go to Jerusalem, that he was going uh, to suffer persecution by the elders, by the the priests and the scribes, and that ultimately he was going to be killed. He was going to be buried and he was going to rise again. Um, Boyce says this. He says, now he begins to teach the disciples openly and repeatedly. This teaching is so difficult for them to receive that Jesus comes back to it again and again. You can go to Matthew 17, 22 through 23, chapter 20, verse 18 through 19, chapter 26, verse 2, verse 12, verse 21, verse 31 through 32. Jesus explains that he will be betrayed, arrested, beaten, tried, and crucified in Jerusalem. But he promises that on the third day, he will rise again. But I believe that as they're hearing Jesus share he's 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 speaking and he says i'm going to be killed and i think at that moment their minds sort of shut down and their ears shut off to hear all of what he's going to say uh, last night i got a text message from deborah and she said hey i want to make a dinner eights video to sort of pr- promote dinner eights and so she, she said i, I want to make it to show it at church and I'm like, oh, that's great, Deborah. But aren't you like at dinner eights like right now? She's like, yeah, I'm at dinner eights right now. And I'm like, I don't think um, tomorrow's a good time. How about you make it, you show it to me, and then we'll definitely use it later. And she's like, Gunner, I didn't say tomorrow. I just said, can I show it at church sometime? And then I went back and I was like, oh, yeah, there's that word sometime. But I, my brain just totally shut down on the text message. I heard, can I show it at church? And I immediately jumped to, she's talking about well, because naturally, what's a pastor do Saturday nights? <laughs> We're cramming. We have a deadline. And I hear there's church. Well, church is tomorrow. She wants to do it at church. But then I go, oh, she said sometime. Well, I kind of think that that's what they, Jesus begins sharing about their de- his death, and they shut down. All they hear is his death, and it can't be. This doesn't fit. Some of the things from this verse 21 that I want to point out, it says, from that time, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must. That word, must. Um, It wasn't like Jesus had a good thing going. Um, 
in the SEAL teams, we, we kind of joke a lot about, you know, when things are going like really well and you can be involved in some heavy combat, but you start going, I feel like my luck's about to run out. Like, we, like things have gone too well too long. Eventually, something's going to happen. And, and often there is like a tragedy and it feels like, oh, well, we had a good run, but all of a sudden then this happened. And so I think it's easy to come to the story of Jesus and you think, oh, you know, well, as, you, as we read the gospel, there are times where they tried to get him and he just sort of got out of it. That happens a bunch. He just sort of eludes them. But then when it comes to the de- the, his, the, his last night, when he's arrested, you think, oh, his luck ran out. He had a good thing going, but all of a sudden they got him. And he just wasn't sly enough. And that's, that's, that's not at all the case. Christ often speaks of, of the appropriate time that, that he had dictated when he would go to the cross. It wasn't that they got him and then they arrested him and they, they brought him to trial and Jesus couldn't stop him. He had this plan, this plan. Uh, there are many, many prophecies leading up to Jesus' uh, death, burial, and resurrection. There are far too many to list. But a couple that stand out to me, um, most scholars go to Genesis 3.15. At the beginning, after creation, uh, Adam and Eve, really Adam is deceived uh, and, and he's held responsible for the disobedience of eating the fruit. And after they eat the fruit and sin enters the world and the human DNA, I believe, is changed uh, so that we now are sinful, in the list of consequences, uh, the serpent is addressed by God. And in Genesis 3.15, it says, He shall bruise you on the head, and you shall bruise him on the heel. Uh, all scholars believe that what this is a reference to is the cross. That it, right at the fall, a prophecy is made concerning the coming Christ uh, this, he shall bruise you on the head, deals with this fatal blow that the Messiah is going to give to Satan. And it says, and you shall bruise him on the heel. And so the bruising on the heel, it's like there's this wounding, but it's temporary. And it's believed that this is the cross of Christ, that as he's, as he's hanging there dying, giving his life up uh, for our sins, for the wrath that's due us, um, he would rise from the dead, and so ultimately it was a bruise to his heel, yet his work on the cross was a death blow to Satan, that he crushed his head in that moment. So that's, that's one prophecy that we see way, 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 I mean, like 8,000 years prior to the cross. And then another one is Isaiah 53, verses 5 through 7. This, is, this really is whole chapter of Isaiah 53 is overwhelming. Uh, a short lesson of how we have the scriptures. The Old Testament and the New Testament were handled very differently in their um, delivery, their, uh, their, their handing out to the people, how they've been transmitted over time. The Jews from Genesis to Malachi took exceptional care of the scriptures. Um, I don't think that I have words to sort of articulate the, the detail that they took to make sure that they were preserved, that they were passed down accurately. Um, as a, as a, uh, a manuscript, a scroll, as it began to be used and worn, it would eventually sort of wear out. When that happened, they would totally destroy it. 
And so there's not a lot of manuscripts that remain of the Old Testament from a long time ago. But then before it was destroyed, scribes, professionals would, would transcribe the text from, from what they had to the new. And so by the time Christ has come and we come to our era, uh, people would look back at the Old Testament and, and critics would look at Isaiah 53. And they say, Isaiah 53 it's so detailed and so precise concerning the crucifixion of Christ that it had to have been added after the fact. There's no way that this was written before Christ. It's so detailed. It had to have been inserted following the cross of Christ. And so two weeks ago, dealing with the land of Israel, if you are a believer, I highly encourage you to go start saving your ducats now because in three years we're going to go another trip. I truly believe this is critical for, for, for believers to go to. If you have questions about the authenticity of the gospel, the, the land, uh, some have said that the land is the fifth gospel, that there's a testimony there concerning uh, the, the reliability of Christ and the, and the scriptures. And one of the places you'll visit is down by the Dead Sea, and there's a place called Qumran, and there are shepherd boys bored watching their sheep. They start throwing rocks one day. And one of the boys throws a rock into a cave and he hears a clay pot that sort of cracks. And he's like, what is that? And so these kids basically go into this cave and they discover these scrolls. And so they think, well, this, there could be some, they're Bedouins. They're like, this could have some monetary value. They take, they take the, what they find. They go to a guy who's like a shoe repair guy. If I got my story right. And that shoe repair guy recognizes that they have something. They've struck gold. And he says, bring everything that you can bring to me. And then he turned it into like the antiquities department and they start researching this. This is in the mid-1900s. So they go back to Qumran and they discover all of these scrolls that, that due to the dry air and the, the cave that they've been preserved like no other uh, manuscripts that they've ever discovered. Um, from some 400 years before Christ, they can date these manuscripts. They, they know historically who lived in this location. And in the Dead Sea Scrolls, which we know them as, one of the books that was recorded there is the book of Isaiah. And can you guess what chapter everybody's like dying to figure out? Like, hey, is, is it authentic or is it, is it added later? Isaiah chapter 53. And so they go and they, they go through Isaiah. Isaiah is 99.999 out to the infinite. Like, it's identical. They have the text like word for word, identical 400 years before Christ. And in that is Isaiah 53. In Isaiah 53, just one portion, I don't have time to read the whole chapter to you. But in Isaiah 53, verses 5 through 7, it says, But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The chastening of our well-being fell upon him. And by his scourging, we are healed. All of us like sheep have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way. But the Lord has caused the iniquity of us to fall on him. He was oppressed. He was afflicted. And yet he did not open his mouth like a lamb that was led to the slaughter, like a sheep that is silent before its shears. So he did not open his mouth. There is prophecy after prophecy after prophecy in the Old Testament, foretelling of the coming Messiah and his death, burial, and resurrection. And Jesus looks at his disciples who they didn't understand the suffering servant that would come. 
But he begins to explain to them from that time Jesus began to show the disciples that he must go to Jerusalem. So we have a map behind us. I like maps. Uh, we hear the church, we, geography is important. What you'll see here is the Sea of Galilee. The bottom of this area is Capernaum. This is sort of the home base of Jesus during his earthly ministry. There's a little uh, triangle here between a couple towns. Most of what's recorded in the Gospels happens in that location. Uh, the area of Caesarea Philippi, is, as a crow flies, is 27 miles uh, northeast a little bit. And so this is where um, they're sitting. This area of Caesarea Philippi is, is not a, G, uh, a Jewish region. This is a very pagan place. Um, the context of our story is sitting there. Um, and Jesus is, is sort of telling them that, hey, I'm going to have to go to Jerusalem. Like, I, I must go there. And bad things are going to happen to me there. This is far from where they were from. They would go to Jerusalem three times a year. Jerusalem is a, is a, is a major city. Israel's very similar today. If you go to the Galilee region today, it's very rural, very nice. I love it. But then you go to Jerusalem and you're in like New York City. Huge. Craziness. Uh, people, cultures, everything moving around. A city that's 24-7. One little thing happens in Jerusalem, like a stabbing, makes worldwide news. And so we Americans are like totally petrified to go over there. But it's just ridiculous. I mean, it's while we were in Israel, there was one stabbing. But in Escondido, I think there was like three homicides. (laughs) And I didn't see those on the news anywhere. And so Jesus begins foretelling that he has to go to Jerusalem. This This is according to his plan. It wasn't by accident. He tells them precisely what would happen to him. Look at what he says. By the hands of the elders and the chief priests and scribes, he would would suffer abuse from them. He would be killed and then he'd be raised up on the third day. He tells the gospel. But they couldn't comprehend what he was saying. And I don't know about you, but I can't really blame them. Like, I don't, I don't, like, we have hindsight. We have further revelation. We, we can look backwards and say, ah, those guys, how did they miss that? I, I guarantee you, I would have missed it too. The Spurgeon writes this concerning this passage. He says, uh, all this must have fallen sadly on the ears of men who still indulged visions of a kingdom of a very different sort. The most of them were wisely silent in their sadness. Yet there was one who had far too bold a tongue. My dear boy, Peter, who I love so much. Like, I love Peter. So look what happens in verse 22. Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. Now, I'm going to walk out on a limb here. But I don't ever think it's a good thing if you're recorded in the scriptures as rebuking Jesus. (laughs) Like, so here's Peter. Here they are. They're up at Caesarea Philippi. It's a beautiful area. Jesus had been teaching them. He'd been asking them some questions. And then Jesus continues teaching about his death, burial, resurrection. And and so we're told that Peter, who we know is the sort of the... um, the big brother of the disciples, he's the oldest of them all. Uh, he takes Jesus 
You know, because any good leader, you don't want to rebuke somebody publicly. You want to pull them aside. You praise people publicly. You rebuke them privately. So Peter says, come here, Jesus. We We need to talk. I have some words to say to you. And we're told... Uh, that, G, that Paul or Peter, as he begins to rebuke Jesus, he says, it just seems funny to read. He says, God forbid it, Lord. The, the irony there, he's, t- he's referring to Jesus as Lord. He understands who he is. Um, he doesn't necessarily understand the plan that is unfolding before his eyes, but he says, God forbid it, Lord. This shall never happen to you. How, how, did, we, how did we get here? Like, it's, it's easy to come down on Peter for his mistake, his words. But I'll also point out that the scriptures not, doesn't hold punches on these guys. Like, like people, oh, Peter, he cut off the guy's ear. Why would Peter do that? Well, if you just back up the story, Jesus said, hey, listen, if you don't have a sword, sell your jacket and buy a sword. So they say, hey, Jesus, we got a sword. Is this good? That's good. You guys can go on now. They go, they go you know, a couple hours later. Here come these guys to arrest Jesus. So Peter says, he's told me to get a sword. I'm going to try to cut the guy's head off. You know, he's terrible swordsman. And so, so how did we get here? Now, let's back up the story a little bit. Let's go back to verse 13 and look at what we covered last week. Now, verse 13, we read, Now, when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, he was asking the disciples, Who do people say that the Son of Man is? And they, say, and they said, Some say John the Baptist, and others Elijah, but still others Jeremiah or one of the prophets. Now, I want to go to the next slide, Deborah. If you can go over to the next slide, I want to show you a picture of Caesarea Philippi. Um, Caesarea Philippi, this is Caesarea Philippi today. It's beautiful. There are three springs that feed into the Jordan River that go into the Dead Sea. Um, so you saw where it's on a map. It's 27 miles northeast of uh, Galilee. This is uh, the Beneus Spring. So things have changed. You can see the whole of the rock where the people are up there. The spring used to pour out from up there. Um, this is water that looks like you're at Yosemite. It's, it's, it's one of the three springs that feeds, that, that basically provides life to Israel. Um, if you were to look closely, this was actually a huge temple. You can see a carving right here, and there's a bunch of engravings. What, what this actually is, if you can go to the next, no, the next slide is actually me teaching there, so you can go to the next slide. No, 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 it's not. No, no, you didn't have to go there. Which way? Which way is it supposed to go? No, no, this is it. This is perfect. This is me teaching at the location 10 days ago or so. Um, You can see it's a beautiful scenic area. If if, if you were sitting here, um, John was here, Penny was there. Like this time of year, there was a ton of people up there for the holidays. So there was a whole bunch of noise um, behind us. But if you go to the next slide now, this is what it looked like then. Um, So over here is that hole in the rock that you see, the big temple coming out. Other places, that, that little spot there, place of worship, there was another temple there. This Caesarea Philippi, I said, was not Jewish. Not only was it not Jewish, this was like the headquarters of all pagan religion. This, this is where, um, as the spring came up from the earth and out, they believed um, that the spring was sort of the gate of the underworld where all of the gods were. This is the heart of pagan worship. And it strikes me that when Jesus starts, he's there in this place, very pagan, very, this isn't a place that good self-respecting Jews would hang out at all. And he asked him, who do people say that I am? 
And, and if I was in that setting, I'd think, oh, he's thinking about these people that are around us, all these, these pagan worshipers. But their answers are very Jewish. Like, they don't seem to connect their location with the questions that he's asking him. And their answers are all very Jewish. These are not the answers that these people would have given him. Now, now look what they say. They say, uh, um, and they said, verse 14, some say John the Baptist, and others Elijah, and others Jeremiah, or one of the prophets. That's not who these people would have said that he is. These are, these are Jewish answers concerning uh, who's Jesus? Who's this guy that's doing all these miracles going around teaching? And, and there would have been rumor, oh, maybe this is Elijah coming back. Maybe this is John the Baptist who had been beheaded and then is now resurrected. We know that uh, Herod the Tetrarch, that was what he thought. And then he turns it and he says, in verse 15, he said to them, but who do you say that I am? And Simon Peter answered, you are the Messiah. We read it in Christ. That's the Greek word for Messiah is Christ. But he says, Messiah, you are the Messiah. The son of the living God. And Jesus says to him, blessed are you, Simon Barjona, because flesh and blood did not reveal this to you, but my father who was in heaven, father who is in heaven. And I say to you that you are Peter's small rock, Petros, and upon this rock, Petra, big rock, I will build my church, and the gates of Hades will not overpower it. Now, 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 understanding the context of where this is happening is powerful. Jesus isn't saying that Peter's the rock. What he's saying is, is that Peter's proclamation that Christ is the Messiah, that's the rock. From, as you read the rest of the New Testament... We're told that Christ is the cornerstone, the keystone, and, and, if, and upon Christ, everything else is built. And then he talks about, and the gates of Hades will not overpower it. And we, we think of the gates of Hades as sort of this offensive weapon coming against uh, the church or Christ's work, and Christ is making a big barrier. But, but the reality is, is that the gates, this is a defensive mechanism to a city, uh, as you would storm a city, you had to defeat the gate. The gate was, its whole purpose was to keep the people safe. And here they are at this location. Uh, not only is there the Jewish side, but we also have the Gentile, the pagan side, which the gate right here to the underworld, to the all of darkness. And Jesus says, none of this will overpower what I'm about to do. And it's powerful. He says, I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. He, said, he, he understands that he has six months before he's going to die, be buried, ascend into heaven. And here these 12 guys are going to carry on the teaching and the leading that he had started. And then he warns his disciples that they should tell no one that he's the Christ because it wasn't time yet. And now we come to verse 21. Now from that time, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and be raised up on the third day. Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. We're still at Caesarea Philippi. We're still at the setting. What did Peter just proclaim? That Jesus is the Messiah. And now Jesus is telling them that the Messiah is about to be killed and Peter's like, that's no bueno. That this isn't the way it's supposed to happen. You're the Messiah. You're supposed to come and to reign and rule with an iron fist. And yet now you're telling me that you're going to go to Jerusalem and you're going to be killed? That's not right. Not on my watch, Jesus. 
You can go to the next slide, back to the verses here. And so Peter took him aside and he began to rebuke him, saying, God forbid it, this shall never happen to you. It's not the way it's supposed to unfold. Their minds are 180 degrees out from where Jesus is going, where Isaiah 53 says the Messiah will go, that this suffering servant, this humble servant will come. They were expecting the the next coming of Christ. And so then in verse 24, but he, that's Jesus, turned and said to Peter, get behind me, Satan. You are a stumbling block to me, for you are not setting your mind on God's interests, but man's. Now, I don't want us to overlook this. I, I think so often we look at Jesus and we know he's the Christ, he's the risen one, he's God. And we think that in his deity that he didn't suffer, that he didn't experience temptation with the same magnitude that we do. In Hebrews 4.15, we're told that we don't have a high priest uh, that can't sympathize with us, but one that has been tempted in every way as we are yet without sin. And I don't think he's, as he looks at Peter and he says, get behind me, Satan, I don't think he's necessarily calling Peter Satan. He's not, he's not saying you're the, you're the devil. But he's addressing the one whom is behind what Peter says, that there's a spiritual warfare happening, that the whole idea of the cross was not an easy thing for Christ to do. If we were to go back to Matthew chapter 4, the temptations of Christ, the third temptation that happened is Satan takes Jesus up to the highest pinnacle of the temple and he shows him all of the kingdoms of the world and he says, if you just bow down, if you just worship me, it's all yours. You can have your kingship, you can be the Messiah and you can avoid the cross. And so I think here that this struggle, what Peter is suggesting is that Jesus bypasses the cross. And Jesus recognizes that the words that are coming out of Peter's mouth are ultimately from the evil one that is putting these words into his mouth. That this, this temptation that there was a way for Jesus to sort of not go to the cross. Remember the Garden of Gethsemane. What does Jesus pray? Lord, if there's any other way, Father, if there's any other way for this, this to be done, like that this cup could pass, let it pass. But it's not about my will, it's about your will. And he subjected himself to the cross. He placed himself into the, uh, the soldier's hands. And he went to the cross for us. This is powerful. And he tells him, as he confronts Peter by his suggestion, he says, what you have is man's interest in mind. You don't have God's interests in mind. And I start thinking about this, like, like, what are man's interests? Like, what, what, are, what are Peter's interests? P- Peter's the number two guy under, under Jesus. For, for Jesus to be arrested, um, to be killed, there goes all of his power. There, there goes all of his sort of, you know, he spent the last two and a half years of his life sort of giving up his fishing trade to, to come serve Jesus. And so for Jesus to be killed, it's like, well, that two and a half years is just gone. Man's interests are so self-focused, inwards, uh, 
whatever's best for numero uno, right? If we go to Romans chapter 3, as Paul makes his case against humanity, he sort of concludes... In Romans chapter 3, starting in verse 9, and there's a whole lot of Old Testament sort of intertwined in what Paul's about to say. He says, what then? Are we better than they? Not at all. For we've already charged that both Jews and Greeks are all under sin as it is written. There, There is none righteous, not even one. There is no one who understands. There is none who seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become useless There is none who does good. There is not even one. Their throat is an open grave. With their tongues they keep deceiving. The poison of asp is under their lips. Whose mouth is full of cursing and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. Destruction and misery are in their paths. And the path of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. And Paul, as he summarizes the interest of man, he says, the interest of man, there's nothing good about it at all. We've all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. But then he tells Peter, you don't have God's interests in mind. And so it's so easy to sort of, you know, pick on Peter. I I thought I'd try to lift Peter up a little bit. You know, like his life has been laid out for us so that we can learn from him. If you'll turn with me towards the end of the Bible in 2 Peter, these are some of the last words that Peter wrote, They're definitely the last words that, that we have of, of Peter. And as he goes about suffering and he goes about uh, looking at how the church is being persecuted, Peter himself w- would ultimately have his life taken. Tradition holds that uh, his... his uh, his, his method of execution was crucifixion, but as he went to the cross, he didn't feel worthy to be executed in the same manner that Christ was executed. So he pleaded with his executioners that he would be crucified upside down because he didn't, want, he didn't feel worthy to die in the same manner that Christ died. And as he gets to the end of his book, dealing with those that are coming against the church and mocking the church and mocking the things of Jesus... I think there's powerful insight into uh, the interest of God or the God's interests that stand totally, completely different from man's interests. And he writes, but do not let this one fact escape your notice, beloved, that with the Lord one day is like a thousand years and a thousand years like one day. The Lord is not slow about his promise as some count slowness, but is patient toward you not wishing for any to perish, but for all to come to repentance. And in these two verses, this, these two sentences, I think Peter sort of encapsulates God's interests, that God's love is not self-seeking. God's love has our best interests in mind. God's self-interest or God's interests are all about others and and desiring that all would come to salvation. That this sin that we're troubled with, that, that keeps us distant from God, is rectified through this action of Christ on the cross, that his death paid the penalty of sin in full. There's a song, I forget, in full, not in part. There's a great old hymn, but I can't tell you the name of the hymn. It's a great song, though. 
But he, he fully paid for it. There's nothing that you can do to earn your salvation. God has covered the bill in full. All you have to do is respond in faith. And I think that the picture as we celebrate today of the resurrected Christ, the death, burial, and resurrection, to quote Keith Green, is not some fable or fairy tale. It's not another sort of picture of all of the fairy tales that we sort of make up. The gospel, the story of Christ and his death, burial, and resurrection, it's rooted in historical evidence that support the things that are written in the scriptures. There's evidence. Uh, I shared last week that uh, Michael Nichols, with a missionary that we support in Africa, who's a Bible translator, who's been a Christian since he was a little kid, whose grandfather was a missionary, at the very end of the trip, he said that the thing that stood out to him most about going to Israel was that his whole life he's been sort of confronted with the the ideology of Christianity, that that he had a decision to make. And that going to Israel, what he was confronted with was not an ideology, but historical fact. And it, it changed him. I stand here today as a, as a transformed man. I mean, my dad's here. He can, you know, I just don't tell him, dad, don't, this isn't a permission to shout out stupid stories about my life back then. But the man I was before Christ was not a good man. And the life that I was leading apart from him was a life that was leading towards destruction and death and calamity and just there was nothing good. And so I reached out to Christ sort of out of desperation. But then as I reached out and turned to Christ, I then began my study and my investigation for truth. And the evidence for Christ is overwhelming. And so if you're here today and you're not sure about where you stand with God, like I would just encourage you to continue progressing in your investigating who Christ is, who Jesus is. I'd encourage you to give your life to him. We're told that salvation isn't about doing a bunch of things. It's, it's about grace, that this is God's gift to us. The, the, the facts are presented that the gospel is, is simply that Christ died according to the scriptures. He was buried according to the scriptures, meaning that the scriptures said he would do this. There was prophecy saying that the Messiah would come, that he would give his life as a substitute for you, that he would receive the punishment that was due you. He was crucified, he died, and then he rose from the grave. And and 1 Corinthians 15 says that he appeared to many, many people. At the time of writing, there were uh, upwards of 500 people who would testify in court stating that they saw the risen Christ. All they had to do to stop Christianity was to present a body, and to present a body is an easy thing to do. You can't hide a body. You just can't. You can get away with it for a while, but eventually a body will be found. And so I'd encourage you to surrender your life to Christ so that your life could be transformed like mine has been transformed. And for those of you who have received Christ as your Savior, whose lives have been transformed, like what it does is it results in worship. 
It, it results in, in a regenerated heart, new life that recognizes who God is, and, and all you can do is praise Him and thank Him for how good He is to you, how He's changed you, how He's saved you. And it's not something for once a year. This is like every day. And so I'm going to close in prayer. The worship team's going to come up, and we're going to sing a last song. And um, My prayer is that this Easter would be a special day for you. Father, we do thank you and praise you for this day. We thank you, Lord, for your word. Father, as we come to this story of Christ beginning to reveal to his disciples that he must go to the cross, Lord, they didn't get it. And it's hard for us to get it, Lord. We, it's hard to think that God would step out of heaven, take on a human body, that this Jesus, his dual nature, 100% man, 100% God, it is more than our brains can wrap around. We only understand in part. But Father, with the part that we do understand, we, we thank you, Lord, that Christ died for us. Father, I pray for those in this room that have confusion about their relationship with you, questions about their sin nature. Lord, I I pray that you would help them to see the gospel clearly, that, that this Jesus would be real to them. And Father, for those of us who have accepted you as Savior, who have given you our lives, Lord, I pray that we would offer you our lives in exchange, not for salvation, but in worship and gratitude. We love you, Father, and we pray this in Christ's good name. Amen.